We've been in this series called Under Grace, where we've been talking about what it looks like for us to live in the new covenant and not the old covenant, for us to live under grace and not under the law, for us to kind of discern how God is working among us. And over the past three weeks or so, we've spent a lot of time focusing on what that means for us personally. How do I how do I treat myself as if I am under grace and not under the law? Um, because I don't know, there's probably a lot of different people in the room, but I, I tend to be my harshest critic. Are you guys, anybody with me? Um, like I'm harder on myself than I typically am on others. Uh, and so I need to be reminded of God's grace for my life all the time. I need to not condemn myself, beat myself up. I need to know that I don't have to be perfect, that I don't have to do everything correct all the time. I need to know that there's grace available for me. Um, and, but, but, but we also want to turn that coin today and talk about this also has radical implications for the way we treat others. And in the end of Galatians chapter 3, Paul starts talking about the impact socially of what this means. It's not just a personal thing. So one of the things that we've done in America is America is deeply consumed with two ideologies. It's consumerism and individualism. And we don't know how deeply that affects the way that we perceive the world, the way that we see situations, the way that we interpret the world until we get around other cultures and until we get around other people. And, and when we begin to interact with people from other cultures, what we begin to see is we begin to see the deeply ingrained systemic ideologies that we grew up in that are a part of the way that we live and the way that we operate. And one of those is individualism. And so we view the world as if everything is about me. We actually read scripture that way. So we, like the New Testament is full of these letters. Galatians is a letter. Galatians is not a guy named Galatians, right? It's a group of people in a community called Galatia. And so what these passages and these letters were written for was they weren't written for an individual. They were written for a community. They weren't written for like some guy named Ted. They were written for a whole community of people that are serving in a church together, living and working and operating and trying to sort out how does this stuff work in community? And so as we read and interpret scripture, we have to understand that all of this is about us as a community, that Paul is radically reorienting the way that we interact with one another, the way that we interact with the world, the way that we see God, the way that we see ourselves, and the way that we see others. And so today, as, as I was prepping for this, I, I just recognized the kind of two sides of this coin. Um, that there are some of us in the room who struggle with giving grace to ourselves but have plenty of grace for others. And then there's others in this room who are on the other side of the same dysfunctional coin <laughs> who have plenty of grace for ourselves but no grace for others. And then there's some like me who vacillate between those two dysfunctions. Right? Are you with me? that bounce back and forth between these two kind of areas of, I've got lots of grace for me, but no grace for somebody else, or I've got no grace for me and plenty of grace for somebody else. But living under grace means that we recognize the divine image of God on every person we interact with. 
It means that we recognize that every person we interact with in a normal week, whether that is the person that we love the most or the person that drives us the most crazy, that those people are image bearers of the most high God. And it changes the way that we interact with each other. This should radically reorient the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with the world. It should influence the way we love people, the way we care for people, the way we speak to people, the the words that we use to people. Um, it, It should radically reorient the way we post on social media, everyone. We've got this thing in our culture now where civil discourse has just gone down the toilet. We've got this thing in our culture now. I I was on Facebook this week, and I'll be truthful. I try and avoid Facebook like the plague. Like, I I just, I'm, it it just, it does something unpleasant in me. Like, I, I just, I'm fine with what I post. I think that's great. But what everybody else is posting is is what is the problem? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but what happens is I, I, I start reading through these things, and, and I don't know about you guys, but over the past, I don't know, five years or so, all of these like remarkable leaders who led me to Jesus are now posting this stuff that looks so far from Jesus to me. And so the people that led me to Christ, I want to rebuke and encourage and correct all the time. And and there's people that I have this deep respect for who are so caught up in this polarized world and this world of opinions and this world of fear and worry and anxiety that they feel like they always have to attack or be defensive. And so what happens, I've told my kids this repeatedly, is on social media, there's a temptation that you can type something to someone that you would never say to their face. And you can type it, and it's kind of mean, and you press send, and you're like, yeah. There's a temptation that we can send emails to one another that we would never do face-to-face. There's a temptation that we can text one another things that we would never text one another, say to one another if we were face-to-face. And so we've got this culture right now of a, a, a whole world of a, a subset of Christianity that is filled with so much fear and worry and anxiety that they want to attack and defend. That that's the only posture they know right now is lashing out. The only posture they know is I've got to battle with everybody to get my opinions out there. I liked it better when people were jerks in private and not on social media. Right? Remember the good old days when there were just people that were jerks, but you didn't really know they were jerks? Now it's out there for the whole world to see. Right? It's out there for everybody to recognize. And, and I, I'll be truthful. I get anxious about this stuff. I, I get worried about it. I, th- there's another election coming. And I don't know that I have the heart for it. Because it just makes me anxious about all the fighting and battling and the wars that are going on and the defending and the fighting, and it's happening from both sides of everything. You could take any issue that's debatable and both sides are acting like children. And so I worry and I get anxious. And and, and even this morning, I just noticed as I woke up this morning, I just woke up kind of anxious about this message. And as we were praying, I just felt the Lord just kind of Coming back to 1 John 4, which is, there is no fear in love. 
that perfect love casts out fear. And, and for us as the church, I think we are on the precipice of an opportunity of a lifetime to show the world that there is no fear in love. To show the world a different posture, to model for the world that we don't have to get caught up in these polarizing things, that we don't have to attack and defend, that we don't have to fight and duke it out, that we can rest in the work that God has done, that we can live under grace and not under the law, which means I don't have to do all the work because God's already done that. It means I don't have to fight for something. I fight from something. It means I don't have to defend or attack or battle because God has the victory. The victory has been won and he He's always present and at work, and he's moving in the hearts of all kinds of different people. And so I can adopt a posture of love and grace and mercy and curiosity and care, and I don't have to be the anxious person in the room. We get to model a different way. And the issue here, as we think about this issue, is, is the issue is grace and law. Like under the law, I have to fight and defend. Under the law, I have to earn and protect. Under the law, I have to win and achieve. Yet under grace, I recognize that the battle's already been won. I recognize that the work is in the process. I recognize that Jesus is at work, that the Holy Spirit is moving. Can I, can I just tell you, we have Democrats and Republicans in this room. I'm going to surprise you by that. And can I just tell you this? Can I, like, I'm gonna, this is a shocking statement. The same Holy Spirit that is at work in Republicans is at work in Democrats. <laughs> there are people in this room who disagree on matters, all kinds of matters. I would bet that you disagree with me on something. I know that's hard, and I know that makes you want to leave the church. But I have lots of opinions on lots of different things, and you have lots of opinions on lots of different things. And I bet if we sat down for an hour, maybe, or maybe two minutes, we could find something that we disagree about. And can I just tell everybody something? It's okay. It's okay. I, I love all of you enough that you don't, you don't have to agree with me that I'm right about everything. <laughs> Honestly, like I, we, we need to love each other in such a way that says we're going to disagree on some things. And when we disagree on some things, what if we rather than attacking and fighting and defending, what if we just got curious and said, wait a minute, I recognize that the same Holy Spirit that's in me is in this person. And so I want to get curious as to why they believe what they believe. I'd, I'd love to discern why I like stand at a completely different spot on this than you stand on this. I, I'd love to discern why, and, and, and the, the whole conversation changes at that point. It becomes a conversation of curiosity. One of the greatest things to say to somebody is, is I, don't, I don't know that we're going to agree on this, but man, I, I sure appreciate your insight. Like, how hard is that? But we live in this world that's so polarized. I absolutely believe this. I believe that the best critique of bad is the practice of something better. And so the only way I know how to work in a world of anxiety and polarization and attacking and defending and social media nonsense is for us to become a place that practices something better. For us to become a place that exhibits a different posture, 
in that world. For us to become a place that says, we're, we're gonna live under grace and not under the law. We're gonna have a non-anxious presence about what's going on in the world. Notice that Jesus was never anxious. Jesus was never worried. He was never thinking the world is crashing down around him. He was always the non-anxious presence in the room. It, it's being able to look at my weaknesses and look at other people's weaknesses and say, yeah, there, there are weaknesses in the world. And rather than shouting them down, why don't we call out the best in one another? I, I've got enough people in my life that call out the worst in me. I'll be, I'll be honest. I need my church family to be the family that calls out the best in me. I've got enough people that squash my dreams and visions and hopes. I need my church family that throws gasoline on those fires and hopes and dreams and says, go get it. We can become something different. So Galatians chapter three, verse 23, Paul starts off with like these six metaphors. Paul's a master of metaphors. And in this really tiny little passage, he runs off six metaphors and then he gets to the really good stuff. So I'm gonna move through the metaphors quickly because what Paul does in Galatians, I don't know if you've caught this yet, is he says the same thing over and over again in different ways, <laughs> right? So he talks about the purpose of the law and what's going on with the law. And here's what he says. He says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up until the faith had come and would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified with faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the question that he's asking here is, why did the law exist anyway? Right? If we're living under grace, then why do we have the law in any way? And he gives three metaphors for this. He says the law is a mediator, is the first one. The law is the mediator, and what a mediator does is a mediator stands between two parties. And what the law did is it stood between us and God. It mediated between us and God until the coming of Jesus. And so there was an old covenant that was created at Sinai. There was an old covenant that was dependent on us. It was dependent on our ability to follow the law perfectly, to do everything right, to, to follow the rules, to do everything perfectly. And then there's, an, there's a covenant, there's a promise that was made to Abraham. And that promise was dependent not on our ability to obey, but on God's ability to show grace. God said, I'm going to walk both sides of the covenant. I'm going to walk both sides of the promise. I'm going to be the promise keeper. And so what we learn through Galatians is that the law is subservient to the promise. The law always serves the promise. But the law was a mediator that got us there until the promise could be fulfilled in Jesus. Does that make sense? The second thing he says is the law is a guard. The law is a guard to keep us safe. Like when our kids are little, we have all these kinds of rules for them that we don't have to have for them when they're older. The reason we have those rules is that we, they keep us safe. We treat children differently, differently than we treat adults because when you're a child, you need barriers and laws that keep you safe. I don't have to talk to my kids anymore about not touching a hot oven. Like I don't have to say, when that stovetop is red, don't put your hand on it because they're not that dumb, right? They figure that out now. But when they were two or three years old, there was this concern because one of my children did that of like, don't touch that. It's hot, 
right? No, no, like, like you're trying to communicate all these things to kids. The, the law was a guard that got us to the promise. And then the last thing it says is the law was a tutor. The, the word is a guardian. That word guardian is actually the word pedagogue. What a pedagogue was, was a teacher. And so a te- what, 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 the way that most Roman cultures worked is there was a teacher who was assigned to a family that cared for their family. Now, in that culture, you only did what your father did. All right, so the question, what are you going to do when you grow up, is, is, a, new, is a new question. That wasn't a question that was ever asked in that time. What you did when you grew up was exactly what your father did. But what they believed was for a child, especially between the ages of like seven and 13, that child is incapable of doing what their father is already doing. And so they need somebody to come in and do like basics, like reading, writing, arithmetic. They need to teach them like basic life skills. They need to walk with them and be this pedagogue or guardian or mediator until they can hand them off to the father. Does this make sense? And so what, the, what Paul is saying here is the law was the pedagogue. It was the teacher that handed us off to the Father. It was the teacher that gave us over. And, and so the law serves the promise. The covenant is always greater than the law. The old covenant serves the new covenant. Law serves grace. And we never want to get these out of order. And then Paul gives three more metaphors. He says in verse 26, So in Christ Jesus, you were children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. He starts with, we are children of God. Now, I I don't, um, and, and here's what that means. It means that we are, we have our standing in the family and it's secure. This, I would actually suggest that this passage is poorly translated. So the way that this is typically translated is we are sons of God. And what's happened is over time, because we wanted this passage to be gender inclusive, which I'm all for, we changed sons to children. But we didn't understand the implications of that change. Because here's what that change means. When it said you are sons of God, in that culture, who received the inheritance? It was the son that always receive the inheritance. I I want you to understand the radical social implications of the gospel. I want you to discern the radical social change and revolutionary nature of this message because when it says we are sons, it means that everybody gets the inheritance. It means the inheritance doesn't just go to the men, the inheritance goes to the women. There is no culture in the history of the world where women were more mistreated than the Roman culture. And what the gospel is doing is it's lifting them up. It's saying, there is a place for you. There are spots for you. And and, and, and Paul begins this by saying, we are all sons, which means all of us get the inheritance, which means all of our place in in, in in the family is secure. It's that everybody is available. So Jesus and Paul and the early church were constantly battling and breaking down three separate walls. They are the walls of racism, classism, and sexism. And they battled those walls over and over and over again and fought to lift up minorities, women, and the poor. 
over and over and over again. And if you read these letters in the New Testament, you will see that over and over again, what, what Paul and what Jesus are doing is they're advocating for all of us to be heirs and not just the sons to be heirs. Does that make sense? So the proper translation is, so in Christ Jesus, you are all sons through faith, which means everybody, women, men, children, slaves, free, Jews, Gentiles, blacks, whites, everybody is an inheritance. Everybody is part of the family. And it's not a metaphorical family. It is the family of God. We are, we're not metaphorically his sons and daughters. We are his sons and daughters. We're not metaphorically brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. It breaks down all of these walls. The second thing he says is we are clothed in Christ. Um, I'm not even gonna spend any time on that, but, but here's some things that we recognize about clothes. Uh, clothes are our primary identity. The, one of the first things we judge people on is what they're wearing, right? It's, it's kind of one of the first filters we see. When we see somebody, we're like, oh, I'd wear that. Or, ooh, that's... That's a little rough, right? And so we, we gauge people. We, we, we examine people. It's our, it's a, it shows something about who we are. When we're clothed in Christ, Christ becomes our primary identity. It becomes the thing that people see. Um, our, the, our clothes, I would suggest that there's nothing closer to our body than clothes. Are you with me? All right. Every, I, I'll be honest with you. Every single day, my clothes are close to my body, especially the ones that I'm wearing, right? Like they're always there. And so if, if, if we're clothed in Christ, that means we're always with him. We're always around him. Um, our clothes are something that hopefully we put on every day, right? So we, we put on the nature of Christ every day. We clothe ourselves in our identity in Christ. We recognize that our primary identity is that we are Christians. And so we put that on. And the last thing that our clothes do is it covers our shame and our weaknesses. I'm very thankful that we wear clothes. There may be some young people in here who wish it were different, right? Um, but, but when you get older, you'll realize you're, you're thankful for clothes, right? Uh, I, I promise you, it, it, won't, it won't last forever, especially the way you're eating all those Twinkies. Um, the third thing that he says is we are one in Christ. And, and this is really huge. He's saying we're not a figurative family. This is not some metaphorical speak about the family of God. We actually are the family of God. And then Paul speaks something that we read as kind of like, ah, yeah, that's good. But in this culture, would have been absolutely radical. Like it would have made crowds go, he says this, for there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and the heir according to the promise. What he says is all of these things that we build our identity on, they are not the things that our identity is built on. We are one. We are one family. We, the promise that was given to Abraham was given to us. The inheritance that is offered to the sons and daughters of God is offered to us. And we are not going to regulate who gets in and who gets out. That's God's job. 
So we've been talking a lot about how we treat ourselves in grace. This has radical social implications for how we treat others in grace. He's saying in Christ, there are no longer barriers that divide us. There is radical equality. And our number one connection is not our cultural identity. It is our kingdom identity. I am, uh, I'm, I'm 44 years old. And somebody the other day graciously told me that in one year I will be closer to 60 than 30. I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white man. Now, I don't know if you've noticed that, but I am. I'm married. I've been married for quite some time. It'll be 20 years this year. It'll be our 20-year anniversary this year. Uh, I have three children who I love very much. I would call myself middle class. Yeah, uh, that's where I land. I'm from the great state of Ohio. We're, we're watching Io. We're a little. We're we're doing a little basketball watching right now. Um, I think our team is terrible, and we were lucky to win the first one. But I'm praying with all measure of grace that we win the second one as well. Uh, and I'm a Buckeye fan. That's part of my identity. I am rooted in this craziness of uh, I don't have any other choice because I grew up in Ohio, and so that's part of who I am. I, I could go on and on about different distinctions about myself, but what this passage is saying is our identity is not cultural, it's kingdom. Like None of those things that I named actually define me. I am actually defined by the fact that I am a son of the Most High God. We we took all these missions trips to Ethiopia. It was one of the reasons why we adopted Claire as we fell in love with the culture and the place. And, and uh, I remember the first time I went, I brought a team of pastors and leaders and we were teaching at different conferences and doing different things. And they, uh, they gathered us together. And, and it's, it's really fun because in, in different cultures, they have different views of time. All right, so here on Sundays, we start the service before everybody gets here. In fact, we start the service typically before most of you are here. You guys are late arrivers, right? And so we, but we don't like, but Tyler's not sitting up here be, saying like, well, I don't know, Blake Miranda's not here yet. I think we should wait another five. I think we should hold off another 10 minutes until somebody gets here. In other cultures, they just wait till everybody gets there, right? And so they're like, we're gathered to meet and we're supposed to meet at three, but Jeff's not there, so we're going to hang out. We're just going to wait until he shows up. And so everybody just hangs out and talks. It's a different view of time. It's a different view of family. It's a different view. Like in America, we're like, oh, if you're not here, you lose. Deal with it. All right? You missed out on that first song, and it was awesome. All right? In other cultures, it's, it's, it's this posture of like, we're going to wait until everybody shows up. And so we waited forever. And, uh, and, then, and then when, uh, when everybody got there, they went around and, and they started introducing themselves. And they said, we want to start with our American friends. And so everybody, would just tell us a little bit about yourself? And all of our American friends stood up and, and kind of gave their resume. It's, it's what we've actually learned to do when we introduce ourselves. It's like, my name's Ben. I'm a pastor. I run an organization called Gravity Leadership. I like the Buckeyes. We just name certain things about ourselves. And it's kind of like identity building on like the, we, we try and 
best each other sometimes. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a brain doctor, Don. Uh, I'm like, I, I, like we, we just throw out all these different things. And, 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 and what was so funny was all the Americans kind of gave off their resume, like all these cultural identity things that they named off. And, and then it got to our friends from Ethiopia. And I'm not kidding. Every single one of them introduced themselves. My name is James, and I am a child of God. Next person, my name is Samantha, and I am a child of God. And then it came to me at the end, and I said, my name is Ben, and I feel really stupid for the way I introduced myself before, because I'm also a child of God. (laughs) All of our cultural identities fade by the wayside to our kingdom identity. I actually was sitting at a table in the same missions trip. I was sitting at a table with, with a, a table full of Ethiopian missionaries. These like just amazing godly people from Africa who were just like sharing wisdom and showing me pictures of their kids. They loved it that I had pictures of my kids playing in the snow. And so I was showing them all these pictures of snow and they were like, wow. And so we had all these conversations about being a mom and being a dad and being a Christian and what, what it looks like to be a Christian in culture. And what I recognized kind of midway through the meal was I have far more in common with these friends who live across the globe from me, are in a different social class than me, look differently than me than I do with so many of my neighbors who live right next door to me. Because what I have in common is a kingdom identity. What I have in common is this beautiful picture of who God is. So all of these are radical social dynamics. And and anytime we start talking about social dynamics, we cannot address social dynamics without addressing power. I, I think the number one thing that our culture needs to learn to deal with right now is what do we do with power? Are you with me? In every social sphere, I would imagine if we brought different people up to the mic right now and just talked about your job or your sphere of influence or what you do, doctors, lawyers, bankers, whatever it is, there is a dynamic of power that is taking place in culture right now that is being revealed. It's almost like we're at a cultural moment where in our culture, people are seeing and observing power that is self-serving, power that is... um, destroying others, that is overpowering others, that is hurting others. So we see power dynamics at play in our relationship with minorities. We see power dynamics in, 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 play, in, in, in play with the way that we treat women. We see power dynamics in play by the way that we treat the poor. All of these involve power dynamics, and we would be foolish to, to not acknowledge that. Jesus actually acknowledged this over and over and over again. He said the Gentiles, what they do is they lord their power over you. They overpower you, but not so among you. That's not the way that we're going to lead. We're going we're to use power in a different way. Jesus models that what we do with our power is not lift ourselves up and earn something for ourselves, is that we lay ourselves down and lift somebody else up. My little girl is fierce. Some of you are laughing because you know her. She's nine years old and she's large and in charge, right? And, and, and there's nothing that I want to do to take that power from her, right? I want her to be a fierce woman of God who is full of power and full of strength. 
And the last thing that I wanna do is say things or do things that strip her of her power or teach her that she doesn't have power or tell her that she has no strength. What I wanna teach her to do is to actually use her power for others. So I'm constantly saying to her, honey, I love it that you're so strong, but why don't we use that strength to help others and not help ourselves? Why don't we use that power to lift others up? This is what's going on here. The call of the gospel. Leadership is not getting people to do what you want them to do. Leadership is not command and control and coercion and using levers of shame and guilt to manipulate and get people to do what you want them to do. Leadership is laying down yourself so that others can be lifted up. Leadership is laying down your life for your friends. And can I suggest that in our culture, Jesus' model of leadership was, I lay down my life for our friends. Our culture of leadership is our friends lay down their lives for our vision or for our mission or for our dreams. It's coercive, it's manipulative, it, it treats people as if they're commodities to be used and served under somebody else's leadership. And Paul begins to break this down definitively. He starts with the culture barrier. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. If that's not scandalous enough for us, you could say there is neither black nor white. That our color, that our heritage is not the most important cultural identity thing about us. Our kingdom identity trumps it. Our kingdom identity is more significant. And this doesn't mean that we walk around saying, I don't see color. Can I just be honest that like, that's offensive. And it's also a miracle. Because <laughs> I, I do see color, right? The, the thing that we're not supposed to do is pretend like we don't see color and that everybody's white. The thing that we're supposed to do is recognize you have a different cultural heritage than me and it's beautiful and it's diverse and I want to learn from it and grow from it and I want to invite you into leadership and I want to invite you into the conversation and I want to understand and discern what it is about your culture that's beautiful and I want to learn about you. It's a completely different posture. So we don't hide, we celebrate. Right? We don't hide from our diversity. Guys, there's people that look different in this room. We don't have to pretend that that's not true. We celebrate that. We celebrate the fact that we're diverse. We celebrate that many of you in this room were born in different countries and have different heritage than me. Some of you, your, your, your constructs of time are much more like the constructs of time of we're going to wait for everybody. And that's a good thing. We need some of that in our culture. Right? We need to learn from one another. We need to invite conversation. Our stories matter. Our histories matter. Our perspectives matter. And so we invite each other into a conversation, recognizing that our kingdom identity is bigger than our cultural identity. I think Paul would be really angry about denominationalism. I think if Paul was writing letters today, it would say, you're neither Baptist nor Presbyterian. You're neither whatever or whatever. I think he would be fired up about all of these things that we have done under the law that divide us from each other rather than connect us to one another. We're going to disagree on a lot of things. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It's going to happen. The second thing that he says is there's a class barrier. Now, here is the fascinating thing. To me, this is when the talk gets fun and interesting. So if it hasn't been fun or interesting up till now, hang on. Because actually all three of these revolutions in a way happened once before. This is not actually the first time we've had these revolutions in wealth and work and knowledge. Because all three of them in a very significant way happened at the time of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the first empire to systematically mint coins, to create coinage as a medium of exchange and use it throughout the empire, largely to salary the standing military that served the generals, the Caesars, eventually the, empire, uh, the emperors. The Romans, of course, didn't have engines in the way we do, hydrocarbon and steam engines, but they did have engines and they had engineering. They had the ability to leverage force in ways that vastly expanded their ability to build, to construct uh, cities and, and other works of, of incredible technical sophistication for the ancient world. And because the Romans eventually conquered the whole Mediterranean rim, they absorbed the knowledge from the world of Greece and the world of North Africa, and all that was brought into these extraordinary libraries of uh, high Roman Republican Empire. And this created incredible prosperity and incredible abundance, especially for the few whose names we still remember. The philosophers and generals and leaders and writers and poets who made a name for themselves in the abundance and the new flowering of humanity that was possible in the Roman Empire. But the distribution of personhood in the Roman Empire was profoundly unequal. Very few people were fully persons, and I mean that in a kind of literal way. Very few people were recognized as a persona, the Latin word from which we get person that's a legal term in Latin, that means someone with the full standing in law and society to be recognized as a full human being. Only the pater familias, the head of the complex Roman household, counted as a person. And everyone else lived in various degrees of personhood, from uh, children who could aspire to inherit their father's status, to women always treated as property of the paterfamilias, and then of course to maybe 20 or 25% of the Roman Empire who were slaves, not so much by virtue of race, but by virtue of commercial or military misfortune, who were stripped of family, stripped of community, treated as property. And one of the most interesting things is, is what happened to the names of slaves. Because the Romans were very practical people. <laughs> And if you really didn't have any prospect of ever becoming a person, they didn't really bother with a name. So you were, if you were male, you were often just named by your birth order. Third, fourth, fifth, Tertius, Quartus, Quintus. Or maybe you'd have a slave born, or a baby born to a slave woman, that child would always be a slave. And so you just decided to call them useful. In Greek, Onesimus. This brings us to what is to me the most sociologically stunning chapter in the whole Bible. It's the least preached upon chapter of the most preached upon book in the New Testament, the Epistle to Romans. And it's Romans 16. And the reason we don't often preach on it is it's basically just a collection of greetings by name to a whole bunch of people that Paul knows or knows of, even though he's never been to Rome and he wants to greet them by name. And it's an astonishing collection. Phoebe, Prisca and, Asp and, Aqu Prisca and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia, uh, Herodian, Persis, Rufus. 
And all of these people, Roman names, Greek names, male names, female names, names that are clearly high status, names that are clearly low status, free names, names associated with slavery, all of them are kind of jumbled together in this set of greetings that Paul wants to personally connect with each of these people. And the most astonishing verse in Romans 16, to me in some ways the most astonishing verse in the whole Bible, comes near the end. And it says this, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who is this? This is the scribe, the amanuensis, the person who's been sitting, taking dictation. Probably early in life, he acquired literacy, probably as a slave. He may or may not be a slave at this time. He's low status. He's there to take down in fair hand the words of free men. And at some point, Tertius realized, realizes that Paul has stopped dictating and is looking at him. And Paul says, Tertius, you should greet them. You're a brother. I, what's his name? Tertius, third. And third writes this, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, in whose house we're staying, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, greets you. And so does our brother, Quartus. Fourth, maybe Tertius's brother. Number three, Number four, now staying in the home of Gaius, having meals with Erastus and all of them by name, greet by name their brothers and their sisters in Rome and hand the letter to Phoebe to take to Rome. It's a, the most astonishing moment in the Bible for me in some ways. Every one of us came into the world looking for one thing. The moment we were born, we were looking for a face. We were born and in the shock and surprise of birth, we opened our eyes and we looked for a face because until we see a face, until another sees us, we do not know who we are. And we looked for someone who would look at us. In the words of uh, the psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, my friend, Every human being, their deepest drama is looking for someone who is looking for us. And we're in this room because someone, some face found our face and locked eyes with us and we were given a name. But at some point in every human life, the gaze shifts, the face disappears. No one is looking for us, that's loneliness. And in some lives that happens very early, even just in the moments after birth, as a glance is given and then someone says, this is number three. Number four. And I imagine what it was like for Tertius to realize that Paul was looking at him, that Paul was seeing him, that he was a brother. And this was the revolutionary act of the early church. In an impersonal world, to recognize persons of every possible status, to see them all and know them all by name and name them all as brothers and sisters. Is it any wonder that the early church grew? 
That's what the gospel does. That's what living under grace does, is it causes us to be the types of leaders who looks at others and sees their personhood, sees the image of God in them, sees them as brothers and sisters, and lifts them up, even when they're annoying. That we do this over and over again. The last thing, and I know we've gone long, but it's important, this is important stuff, is the gender barrier. He says, neither male nor female. What the New Testament said over and over again is women are equally gifted, equally accepted, and available to every sphere of influence in the church. They are equally heirs. They are equally invited to the table. We've got a list of just a few. I gathered just a few. Can we get those up there? These are all women in the New Testament who led, taught, and had a seat at the table of leadership. Over and over and over again, we see this model, Priscilla. Phoebe is the one who took the letter that Tertius wrote to the church at Rome and taught it to everybody. She's the one who stood in front of the church at Rome and interpreted what that meant. She's the one that was the elder and the leader and the guide for this letter. And she stepped into that space and led with passion. And here's what we do about leadership with women, because this is still a cultural debate for some reason. We, we, we cherry pick a few passages out of scripture that say women can't teach or lead or speak or women can only teach women or women can't lead in these meetings or women can't do in these things. But we don't take the passages that say to women, they're not supposed to speak on a Sunday morning. So when any, when anytime somebody comes to me and says, well, we don't have women in leadership or we don't let women teach, then I say to them, well, I'm assuming that you don't have women who say a word on Sunday morning, women that don't wear jewelry on Sunday morning and women that don't cover their head on Sunday morning because the new Testament tells them to do all of those things too. So which one of those are you applying? Because what we've done is, and, and can I just be frank about this? It's about power. We have not offered a space for women to lead. We've not empowered them. We've not laid down our lives for them. I want my daughter to grow up in a church where there's people on stage that look like her, that are women, that are fierce, that know God, that are Holy Spirit driven, and give her a model of what it looks like for women to lead in the church. I want us to be a place that lifts women up and says, we're sorry that the church has pushed you down from generation to generation, but not so among us. The Gentiles have lorded it over you, but we're not going to do it anymore. That is not going to be our culture. That's not going to be the way that we're going to do this. And we don't do this from a sense of cultural accommodation. We do this from careful biblical interpretation. I have researched this topic for years. I have read everything there is to read about this. And I can tell you, there is not a single scholar of the Bible who is worth anything that would suggest that women didn't lead in every capacity in the New Testament. And here's what gets us caught up. In Genesis 2, verse 18, God says this, I created for Adam a suitable helper. We get caught up on this one word, helper. And we take that word helper, and because, can I just suggest, men have typically been in power? Can I just suggest typically white men have been in power? Because of that, what we've done is we've taken that word helper, and we've turned it into a subservient person. So it's, it's, it's kind of, um, the way that we read that is it's a subservient assistant, 
So Eve was a subservient assistant to what Adam was doing. She's just there to help him do what he wants to do. She's just there to kind of tag along and pat him on the back, give him a kiss, tell him he looks nice that day, those kinds of things. The word helper in Hebrew is the word azir. Can I just tell you, it's used two times in, in, in the Old Testament to describe women as helpers. It's used three times to describe people helping others, like just serving others, loving others, helping others. And it's used 16 times to describe the way that God helps us. Come on. 16 times to say, this is how God works and operates and moves. This is not a subservient assistant. This is someone who is with you, beside you, lifting you up, encouraging you, using all the gifts, all the power, all the authority, everything they have and standing for it. And I just want to say unequivocally, without any hesitation, that Grace Marietta will always be a church where women are invited to the table to lead. <laughs> We're going with the music right there. I'm not even ready for this. I'm just getting fired up now. We, we're not going to be a place where women are the minorities and they're just some kind of subservient helpers. We're not going to be a place that fights the culture wars. We're not going to be a place that gets involved in the polarization of these crazy different ideas. We're going to be a place where we look at one another in our differences, in our weaknesses, in, 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 in the ways that we're not like one another. And we say, how do I lay down my life for my friends? We look at each other, we see each other, and we say, you greet them. You get up front. You lead, you guide us, you give us wisdom, you pray, you give us a word, you teach us. Because culturally, there's a, there's a power struggle going on and biblically, there is no power struggle. The reason why is because God is not a God of scarcity. He has an abundance of power that he's given to all of his kids, men and women, black and white, rich and poor. The power distribution is equal. He said, you're all my heirs. You all have my authority and power. I've given it to everybody and I've distributed it equally. And so go and lead, go and live together, go and work together, go and serve one another, go and help one another the way that I help you. And this becomes the way that we lead. And so the way that we treat each other is under grace and not under the law. The way that we treat each other is we look at each other's differences and we celebrate the diversity. Can I, I, can I just say, women in the room, like, we need you. We, you no women have ever started a war. Like, we need your help because sometimes our meetings are just wars. We need your love. We need your patience. We need your kindness. We need you to be who God created you to be. And men in the room, we need you. And we need you to be who God created you to be. Ephesians chapter four talks about the family of God. And it says, some are called to be apostles, some are called to be prophets, shepherds, teachers. But it all happens so that we can become one. And it's, what it's saying is when a church doesn't use a part of its body, what it is is it's like a body without an arm. It's like a face without a nose. There's something incomplete about us when we don't use the whole body. And so we need the whole body. 
And when we live under grace, we don't use power to get what we want. We use power to die to ourselves and live to others. And so Heavenly Father, I, I just pray that you would teach us to become a community that celebrates our diversity. I pray that you would teach us to become a people that lift each other up. Lord, I pray that a year from now, our church looks different than it does right now because we've learned something about the way that we relate to minorities and women and the poor in a way that helps them to know that there is a safe place at the table here. I pray that you would transform our hearts to see one another as your image bearers. And I pray that we would deal with everyone in your grace and in your mercy. So Lord, make the most important thing about us you. Make the most important identity that we carry not be our race or our class or our sex, but make it be you. And make, Lord, just be glorified in this place. And as we enter into seasons of anxiety and fear and worry, I, I just pray that your perfect love would cast out that fear and that you would overwhelm us with your love and mercy. So I pray for that right now, Lord. We're gonna to come to the table now, guys. And at the front is the, uh, the juice and the bread. And we come in remembrance of a God who laid himself down for us. We come in remembrance of a God who laid down his life for his friends. And we say, may we be like him. And so here's what I want everybody to do. Everybody in the room, as you come to the table today, I just want you to pray and say, Lord, is there an area of my life where you're inviting me to die for a friend? Where you're inviting me to lay down my preferences for theirs? Where you're inviting me to love them deeper? When you're inviting me to care for them? Where you're inviting me to see them more clearly the way that you see them rather than the way that I see them? Where you're asking me to lay down cultural identities for kingdom identities? And, and just try and see who that person is that the Lord reveals to you. And as you come to the table, I want you just to think about how do I love that person this week? How do I lay down my life for them this week? And what does that look like for us to practically take this radical message and apply it into our everyday lives? So let's come to the table, let's worship together, and let's wrap up the service together.